I didn't know anything about ADHD. I really thought that it was just like, oh, you can't sit still or like, hey, look, squirrel. Like, I really thought like that was it. Come to find out it's a little bit more deeper than that. <laughs> and, uh, and, and what's funny is when I got diagnosed, so many things about my younger life started to make sense. I was like, oh, this is why that happened. You're listening to Refocus Together, and this is episode nine, Kairos Keenan-Westcott and Going Deeper Than Squirrel. Welcome back to Refocused, a podcast all about ADHD. I'm your host, Lindsay Gensel, and today we've got another story in our Refocus Together series, the special series we started last year as a part of our commitment to ADHD Awareness Month. The plan is to share the stories of 31 people with ADHD each day during the month of October. We created Refocus Together as a way to raise awareness of just how complex ADHD is and the different ways it shows up in people's lives. You just heard today's guest, Kairos Keenan-Westcott. Kai is an accomplished content creator and mental health advocate from Philadelphia. In 2022, at 35, he was diagnosed with ADHD, an experience that changed his life forever. Since then, he's been chronicling his journey on Instagram through his account, The Vibe with Kai, sharing how ADHD has impacted his life and how he's dealing with it. As someone who has gone through the process of understanding ADHD, severe depression, and generalized anxiety disorder, Kai knows how isolating it can sometimes feel. His mission is to help people realize they're not alone, and that resources and tools are available to help them, regardless of what their background might be. Kai uses his storytelling skills to make mental health more approachable and understandable. He infuses humor into mental health discourse through podcasts and social media to foster open, honest conversations. You can find more information about him and his work on his website, thevibewithkai.com. Let's hear more from Kai about his commitment to educating himself and others about ADHD, what it's like to provide a platform for people to feel understood and supported in their journeys, and how bringing joy into people's lives can create a positive and understanding community around mental health. What's really easy about all of these Refocus Together interviews is they start with the same question, which is, when were you diagnosed and what was that process like for you? And what sparked those initial conversations? I'm a late bloomer when it comes to ADHD. Uh, I was diagnosed in August of 2022. So it's been a little over a year for me. And the process, I mean, if we're talking afterwards, I mean, I, it was a, it was mind blowing because I didn't know anything about ADHD. I really thought that it was just like, oh, you can't sit still or like, hey, look, squirrel. Like, I really thought like that was it. But like, come to find out it's a little bit more deeper than that. <laughs> and, uh, and, and what's funny is when I got diagnosed, so many things about my younger life started to make sense. I was like, oh, this is why that happened. So yeah, I, I knew something was up. I knew, I knew something was going on. I was talking to my primary care doctor and I was already in therapy and we're like, okay, let's go a little bit deeper here. Next thing you know, hey, Kai, you have ADHD. And I'm like, okay, all right, cool. <laughs> I'm wondering what stood out to you. You know, so much makes sense once you have the diagnosis. 
What were some of the things that were strongest in your life? So there were two things that stand out to me the most. Number one, time does not exist for me. And it's always been like that. I really thought that I was just like dumb. I really did. Like I, I like time. When I tell you that time leaves my brain, that's something I've dealt with my entire life. At no point that I think it was ADHD. I just really thought I was like a clumsy like person. I was just always late. So that was the one thing. The other thing was that it was always hard for me to push the start button. There were so many things that I wanted to do that I'm like, I really want to go do that. But the process of actually pushing the start button so I can get up and go do that thing was hard. And I'm like beating myself up. I'm like, I'm lazy. I'm not motivated. Like all of these things. And as I'm explaining this to my therapist, my therapist is like, let's, let's have a conversation. And it all makes sense. What's changed for you since your diagnosis? You know, you mentioned some of the things that stood out. What are you doing to kind of combat them? Because you can't just erase them. You can't fully fix them. Medication only helps to a certain degree. But it's learning to live with them in a way that is less destructive. Yeah, absolutely. I always uh, compare my ADHD to like that coworker in your office that always heats up fish in the microwave. Like, that's so disgusting. But like, they're a good worker. Like, they're there. They're not getting fired or anything. They're just a little annoying sometimes. That's ADHD to me. It's like, it's just like, this is there. And I always say like, to me, at least, and I know there's other people that disagree with this sometimes, but I don't think there is a cure to ADHD. I just think it's just something that you just have to manage. I don't even like saying the word battle. I don't even like saying I battle ADHD because that kind of puts a negative connotation to it. So I'm just saying I, I manage my ADHD because it's going to be my partner for life. So since my diagnosis, things became so much clearer. And because of that, as you stated, like, like the medicine that I take helps open the door, but like, that's just part of the process. So I'm able to take specific steps to make sure that I'm productive, to make sure I stay on task, to make sure that I, you know, don't lose track of time, you know, little things like that. And I feel as though in the past year, I've been more productive than I ever have been in like the longest time. Don't get me wrong. It's still a struggle. It's really, really hard. And I have my good days and not so good days, but good Lord, <laughs> I feel so much better. I couldn't agree with you more. You have to take the bad with the good. And the unfortunate part is that it ebbs and flows and is kind of all over the place. And every day is different. So you're just kind of not sure which grab bag you're going to get. You mentioned that you were in therapy at the time of diving into this ADHD diagnosis. Did you change anything about what you were working on with your therapist following, you know, this life-changing realization? Yeah. So for context, I, the reason I was in therapy in the first place was because earlier that year, uh, this like February or March of last year, 2022, uh, I was diagnosed with severe depression and generalized anxiety disorder. So those were the first two things. And so like we were starting, you know, my, my process for that, my treatments, my, you know, giving me tools and resources. And I still felt something was off. There were still some things that I was struggling with. Like I felt better, but like there were still some things, like little things I was struggling with. And as I was describing the symptoms to my therapist, she kind of like started to piece things together and I ended up, you know, taking these like tests and all that and it all started to make sense. So in, in regards to the way that I approached therapy, the ideology stayed the same. But the tools and, and focus sometimes would shift depending on what I'm struggling with that week or if there's like an overarching goal that we're trying to reach for that month or that week or whatever it may be. So it's kind of off and on. But the funny thing is that with ADHD and depression and anxiety, they all work hand in hand. So it's not even like three separate things. They're like three things that are like skipping down the street, holding hands, like saying, yay, 
Kai's brain. Like that's, that's what's happening. And so the, the treatment behind that, it, honestly, it all, it's all linked together. You are a content creator and you talk a lot about mental health. I'm wondering where you were in your journey with everything that you put out online when this all was unfolding. So I've been a content creator for a long time and I never delved this deeply into the mental health side. I was always kind of like the guy that was like, hey guys, good vibes, yay. <laughs> you know, kind of like like a Mr. Positivity kind of person. But I never really delved deep into like the mental health aspect of it. It was just like, okay, how can I make people smile? Can I be silly? Can I be, you know, uh, make stupid jokes? Whatever it may be. I just wanted to make people smile and make people laugh. So that's what I was like beforehand. And so as things started to shift in my life from a mental health standpoint, that's when my content started to shift as well. I knew that I wanted to document this entire experience because I know that there's so many other people out there that that feel like they're alone. It's really interesting how like so many people have to deal with these things, yet we still feel so alone as if we're like we're by ourselves in this journey. If I can play a, like a small role in helping somebody understand that there is help out there that they're not alone, that there are resources, there are tools, there are people you can talk to. If I can help at least one person, all of this is worth it. Every single, every single late night making stupid videos, <laughs> you know, every single interview, every single email, DM, all of that, it's all worth it. What was so important to you about being authentic during this journey? There's so much, and again, this is just my opinion. I think on social media, there's a lot of toxic positivity. And I think that people can often see right through the BS, right? And I don't want to be that kind of person. I don't like when people are not authentic and genuine in what they're presenting because people just won't connect with it as much as you think they would. So I'm like, I'm just going to go out there and be me because that's the easiest thing for me to do. I don't have to pretend to be anybody else. Like people are often surprised when they meet me in person because I see my, my videos all the time. And then I meet them in person and they're like, you're just like your videos. I'm like, yeah, that's, that's me. <laughs> I'm still a goofball. You know, I'm still awkward as hell. Like I'm still like, that's just who I am. And so I try to be as authentic and genuine as I can, because I feel like people are able to connect with that a little bit more. How do you manage the expectations that come when you have a following online? And I ask that because you can be as authentic as you want and you can be as energetic as you want. But then there's always people, in a sense, expecting something from you. And it can be very draining. And for someone who struggles with anxiety and depression, you can feel like you are letting people down. And I have nowhere near the followers that you do. And there are times where I'll open it and I'll be like, I can't handle this. And it's a wonderful platform to have. You know, it is so important that people are out there sharing this kind of stuff. But we have to set boundaries. And sometimes people with ADHD, we struggle with those. I think humans in general just struggle with boundaries, but we just have an extra hard time with it. Yeah, the pressure is a unique pressure. And I always view it as, as, a, as a blessing and, and a humbling experience. And one thing I always say to people is that, honestly, the follower count doesn't really matter because there could be five people in a room with you and you could still feel that same type of pressure and anxiety that somebody with 5 million people online might feel, right? It's, it's a similar type of feeling. 
I do feel at times like a certain responsibility to make sure that I present the right information, that I'm validating people's feelings and journeys because everybody's situation is different. I try to hear different you know, sides of the story. I want to hear as much as I can. And I have to be kind to myself. You know, if there is a mistake that's made or, or you know, I'm, like I'm a people pleaser by nature. So like, it's really difficult for me sometimes to, you know, know that I said something that maybe upset people or made people feel like I, I don't understand what they're going through and so on and so forth. So there is there is some pressure, but then I, I always bring myself back down to earth by just saying, just reminding myself what my goal is. I remind with every piece of content that I put out there, what is the point of this? Who am I trying to help? How does this help me? And I kind of like just reel myself back and keep things into context and keep myself as level-headed as possible and grounded and then kind of go from there. The really tough part is that like I live under a microscope sometimes. So like everything that I do offline, people like might know me. Every time I go outside, I have to be aware of the fact that like that person may follow me <laughs> and and I'm you know, all of this. So I, I have to be very conscious of that, but I'm still me. You know, I just, I still be as genuine as possible, but it is, it is a little pressure, a little bit. And I started following you before I knew you had ADHD because I thought you were so funny and relatable. And there is something so lovely about getting that little distraction online, especially with social media, the way it is right now, where it's everyone's posting their, their top picks, their top life moments. And I think it can be really hard for people. It's almost like, you know, living next to the Joneses, but amplified to a degree we haven't even comprehended yet. And so then when I found out you had ADHD, I was like, oh my gosh, we have to get him on the show because it is so nice to be able to laugh about some of the stuff. You know, I think one thing that I've realized after my diagnosis is like the grief is so heavy of all of the stuff that I wish I could have done that I have to laugh at like the silly things in order to balance it out. And I'm wondering, you know, you mentioned that you looked back and you can see so much. So what are some of the things that you've specifically been focusing on this last year of maybe letting go or being excited about the future for? I always struggle. I, I always, I always held myself to like a really high standard. I always try because Growing up, I played sports, right? And when, when you play sports, your coaches are always just pushing, 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 pushing. And if you miss a shot, keep running. You got to run again. Or if you, you know, miss a pass or something, do extra push-ups, whatever it may be. Like, that's how I was growing. So, like, I was always, like, in this, like, perfectionist mindset. I was a people pleaser. I wanted to make sure that everybody was happy. I, I, like, I, if somebody was upset with me or if I did something wrong, like, I would, like, really... <laughs> I would really take that to heart. I still do at times, but what I'm trying, what I've been working on lately after my diagnosis is, as I said before, being kind to myself, but also just like understanding that I can't control everything. Things are going to happen. There's a lyric from, uh, from the musical Hamilton that I live by uh, and Aaron Burr in the song, wait for it sings, I am the one thing in life I can control. And that lyric has stood out to me ever since I first heard it because it's so freaking true that like we go through our lives trying, like getting upset with ourselves because of things that are out of our control. I can't control you. I can't control my coworkers. I can't control my sister. I can't control anybody else except for me. I can be proactive and I can and, and react. That, that's what I can do and, and take action. That's what I can do. 
And so like, I'm trying to, one of the things, the biggest things that I've been trying to work on is just like being kind to myself and removing myself from this expectation of perfection and this expectation of being able to control everything around me, because that's incredibly unhealthy. And it took me 35 years. <laughs> it took me 35 years to come to terms with that. And it's still a challenge, but I, I, I can proudly say that I've gotten better. Let's stay on the topic of perfection. With creating content, how does that work? Because you are doing a lot of it yourself, I have to imagine. And I know me. I work on the podcast. I am my own worst enemy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I... I am always, admittedly, I am always in my head because I, I want to make people laugh, but I also want to be mindful of the fact that like when we talk mental health, this, this is a serious topic. Like people have lost their lives and lost loved ones because of this. So I, I'm very conscious of that. Um, I don't want to put out anything that I feel is subpar or not really funny. But on the other end, I also don't want to overthink it because like sometimes my stuff is just like so like it's like 10 seconds. It's like, Kai, just just post it. If, if, if people don't like it, it is what it is. So, yeah, I am in my head a lot when it comes to content creation. I, I'm not, I don't think I'm in the perfectionist mindset anymore, but I am very conscious. You'll notice with a lot of my content, a lot of it's very self-deprecating, uh, number one. And number two, I never talk about anything that I don't personally have to manage. So like you won't hear me talk about like OCD or uh, being bipolar or any, like, anything like that. I'm going to talk about the things that I manage because I don't know those worlds. I don't, I, I don't have to manage that. So I don't think it's appropriate for me to make a joke out of it. I'm wondering if opening up about mental health on your platform has brought up any interesting conversations with people in your life that you're close with who might not necessarily be followers on social media. Yeah, my mom and dad, my mom and dad, that's, and this is where I get a little emotional because this was a really hard conversation to have because I had to explain to my parents that it's not their fault. And I was so reluctant to want to even talk about it with my parents because I know that my mom would be like, this is because of me. I gave this to him or I, uh, because the way I raised him, whatever it may be. And I just want to be like, mom, no, that's not how it works. I promise you. I promise you, you did nothing wrong. The same thing with my dad, you know, I, like having these conversations and to know that they know that I'm struggling and there's really not much that they can do other than just listen and support whenever they can. That's hard. Because 35 years with your parents thinking that like everything's okay and then suddenly it's not, that gets hard to talk about. And I'll never, I'll never forget, I never approached my parents with it, but my content and platform started to get so big that people at my mom's church were starting to be like, oh, did you see your son's video? And she's like, no, <laughs> he's on Instagram. Oh, I don't have Instagram. And so like my, my mom's church friends were starting to show her these videos of me talking about ADHD and depression and anxiety. And so like, that's a hard thing to be like, Hey mom, yeah, I'm a content creator. She knew I was a content creator, but she knew what I was doing. I'm like, yeah, I'm a content creator talking about all the things that I cry about at night. 
<laughs> I've been outed by some of my mom's friends too, actually from people at church. So I very much commiserate with that. But how lovely that you get to have those conversations, even if they're difficult. Like you're breaking the cycle. That's what I keep telling people is like the silence that we held on to because of mental health and I think we have this idea that we have such a great understanding of the human body. We know some stuff. We have so far to go. And the human brain, I mean, psychology itself is not very old. And you think about ADHD, it's just even what we're learning about comorbidities and how they tie into one another and what fuels them. You know, I, I love your little Kai skipping down the road together. The analogy that I use is Independence Day, uh, the blockbuster where, you know, the mothership, it's not until they get into the mothership that all the little ships start, you know, crashing into Earth. It's a great movie. <laughs> great movie. And when I figured out the analogy, I was like, this is a great analogy for my ADHD. I was like, I'm sticking with this one. But sometimes you feel like you are just constantly working and it's exhausting yeah, it's really tough, especially like for those of you that are listening and can't see me, I, I am a, uh, an African-American male and there's not a lot of research that has been done, or, like at least not to the extent as it's been done on, on white males when it comes to ADHD and African-American, uh, especially African-American men. So a lot of the times when it comes to ADHD and, and black men, a lot of time, doctors and therapists are just trying their best with what they got and what their knowledge is. There's not a lot of studies surrounding it. And we're still learning because we're getting to a point now that African-Americans, just anybody, any person of color is starting to open up a little bit more about their mental health. And we're starting to learn a little bit more. But you, it's surprising. It's 2023. And like, we're still struggling having these conversations in the black community. And so like, I always say, if like, if there's one little black kid out there that played basketball or was playing football and likes playing video games and, you know, likes riding roller coasters that, you know, somebody, some little kid that's just like me when I was, you know, a young teenager or young boy that just happens to see my content and it opens up their eyes to, to this and it makes them want to go seek help or go talk to somebody, man, like if, if I were to ever find that out, like I could retire and just call it a day. Like I, I, that's all I want. That's all I want. <laughs> really? I, like it's, it's tough, but it's a thing I strive for. I'm wondering if you can expand a little bit on what you see as being one of the biggest blockades for African-American men in addressing mental health. And I imagine that there are some similar crossovers for men of all different races. Yeah, yeah. There's a stigma that comes with being open and being vulnerable. And men are raised to be strong and not let anything bother them. But the problem with that is what we are seeing now, which is this disconnect of people not being comfortable opening up. Because we have just, you know, been grinding into these stereotypes for so long. Yeah, absolutely. That's I, I'm glad you're bringing this up because this is hella important. So, and again, like as you stated, as you prefaced before this, like I, I want to just talk about this from a black male perspective. This is not to say that like that doesn't mean that white males don't matter or anything like that. I'm just talking about it from like from a black male perspective. 
when I was growing up, there were three people that I looked up to the most. Athletes, hip-hop and R&B artists, and my dad, right? Those are three people, none of whom was talking about mental health. At least not, not, not outwardly, right? So we have that. Also in the Black community, understandably so, there is a stigma about the healthcare system in general because of how the healthcare system treated African-Americans continues to this day, but like especially a long time ago when African-Americans were used as test subjects for a lot of things. And so there's, there's already a stigma there when it comes to that. On top of that, typically in a, in a Black community, if there's an issue that you may have, the first thing that you do is go to church and you're, you just, you pray, you pray that God will take care of you and, and, and that God will, will guide you. It's really tough for people in the black community to seek help, not, not even just from a stigma standpoint, but the resources are not there in inner city neighborhoods, especially in urban areas. There's the, the resources are, not to the same quality. They're not readily available. When I first started going to therapy, I really, really wanted to have a black male therapist. I live right outside of Philadelphia, major metropolitan area. There were five, none of whom I can book an appointment with because they were all fully booked. So like, that's the kind of stuff that we have to deal with. And so there's a reluctance there sometimes from the people in the black community to get help because sometimes it's just not there. <laughs> and other times like, like, what, like, why would we, when, you know, we can just pray it away, you know, kind of thing. So, um, and also lastly, it's not talked about in our school systems either, but, you know, particularly in inner, inner city school systems, at least not as prevalent as it should be. It might be like maybe a class period or maybe like half a marking period or something like that. But like, it's not part of the, it's, it's like an extracurricular, it's like an excursion on a vacation, <laughs> you know, as opposed to like an actual class or an actual lesson and stuff like that. So uh, I think it starts from when we were young, when we're younger uh, and then having the resources there and educating people. And then hopefully people will be more likely to seek out help and, and know where to go and understand what they're dealing with. I really appreciate you diving into that. I know there's so much that goes into it. And I just, from my perspective, I think it's so important that we are talking about it. And I'm really glad that you mentioned that you struggled to find a therapist who looked like you, because I know that is something that holds back a lot of people, both men and women, because you want someone who can understand your experience. And that comes typically when you recognize yourself in the person you're confiding in. How did you handle those first couple of sessions in therapy? How were you able to let your walls down in a situation where it wasn't the ideal situation you had hoped it to be? I was frightened. I really was. I was scared because I went in. I'm like, I don't know. And like, I, like, I don't know if this person's going to understand what I'm going through. Now, let me again preface this by saying like the person I'm seeing now my therapist that I'm seeing now, whenever I talk about therapy, it always sounds like I'm dating. The person I'm seeing now, <laughs> you know, uh, we have a date every, every Monday at six. Um, and like, this is the third person that I've tried, you know? So like, you're not always going to vibe with everybody, you know? It's, it really is just like dating. Like you're going to connect with somebody or you're not. 
So luckily I'm with somebody now that I connect with. But I, going into it, I was really scared. Uh, I'm going to butcher this stat um, and the numbers might have changed because I haven't looked at it in a bit. But uh, I was looking up to see what the, just, what the demographics were in general when it comes to therapists in the United States. And I saw that out of all the therapists in the United States that are registered onto psychology today, 80% of them are white. The other 20% is everything else. Out of that 80%, 70% of that, or not, it was like 60 or 70% of that 80% are white women, right? And so I was like, I don't know if anybody's going to really understand what I have to go through. I think they'll understand ADHD. I think they'll understand depression. I think they'll understand anxiety. But like, I don't know if they're going to understand what it's like being a black man with this, where you already have what you mentioned before, like these societal stereotypes weighing you down, you know, on top of the ADHD, on top of the depression and anxiety. And so I really had to search around for that. And there were times I got discouraged and I'm like, I'm not going to find anybody that understands. Luckily, the person I'm seeing now, you know, has a good grasp on it, but it was tough. It was really scary. I want to look to the future and I'm wondering what is exciting for you or what is bringing you hope right now? In the future, I see myself winning a million dollars, paying off all of my student loans. <laughs> uh, that's the ideal future. Where do I see my future? That's always hard for me because what I do for my life, it's like it's so day to day and week to week, month to month. But I honestly, I try to see myself trying to reach as many people as possible and trying to get people to, as many people as I can to understand that they are not alone in this journey. They are, you are not alone in this journey. And it's such a cliche thing to say, but it's so true. It is so true. You are not by yourself. I know it may seem as though that way, understandably so your feelings are valid, but you are not by yourself. There is help out there. The more people that I can get to uh, understand that, the better. If that means that my platform grows more, Awesome. If that means that, like, I just focus on a certain set of people, awesome. Whatever it may be, um, I just feel very blessed um, to have the platform that I have now. It's a very humbling experience. It's a very exciting experience, and I'm really excited to see where it goes next. I have to ask how you got into this. You know, when we were kids and we were told we could be whatever we wanted to be when we grew up. Instagram content creators was not a job. So how did you end up here? That's a great question. So I went to school when I was in college uh, and parts of high school. I did a lot of marketing just in general. And to this day, my daytime job is like is marketing. I'm an, ex an executive director at a marketing firm uh, right outside of Philly. And so I, I've always been around the marketing side of things. And I with the field that I'm in social and the rise of social media, I had no choice but to embrace it because my clients were like, hey, what is this Facebook thing? <laughs> you know, uh, and I had to like understand it so I can explain it. And, you know, now nowadays it's, you know, TikTok and, you know, Instagram Reels and YouTube Shorts, and like all this. I have to understand that for my clients. And then I luckily I can take that knowledge and just apply it for me, uh, which helps a lot. So. No, when I was growing up, I wanted to be a basketball player. I really wanted to be a basketball player. And uh, yeah, uh, there was no box for me to check off with my guidance counselor saying that I wanted to make silly content on Instagram. 
she would have been like, what is Instagram? <laughs> it's 2001, Kai. <laughs> what, is, what is Instagram? At least you went to your guidance counselor. That's your step. You were a step ahead of me. <laughs> yeah, we were cool. We were cool. <laughs> What's something you wish people understood better about ADHD that maybe you see they're just not connecting with? I think sometimes people truly do think it's squirrel. <laughs> and I think, I mean, not saying that like that doesn't happen because it does, but like it's way, 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 way deeper than that. And, you know, ADHD is a, it's a spectrum. So like there's so many different things that can manifest inside you that may be different. Like you and I both have ADHD. I can guarantee that our symptoms and day-to-day things that we have to manage probably are different, right? But that doesn't lessen somebody else's ADHD. That doesn't lessen mine. That doesn't lessen yours. There's no like perfect version of it. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just is what it is. So I wish more people would understand that it's a lot deeper than squirrel. Way more deeper than that, even though the squirrel thing does happen. <laughs> it's way deeper than that. <laughs> The squirrel thing definitely does happen, but like with everything in life, there's the stereotypes and the tropes and the squirrel is what we're working with. Yes. Yes. I, I, I just, I, I want to try to educate people as much as possible because that's what happened to me. I went 35 years thinking that it was squirrel or thinking that, oh, I, my, my leg's shaking. I can't sit still. Like <laughs> I, I have ADHD. Like I, I really thought that was it. Or that I, I just really loved cracking my knuckles until like day two of being medicated. And I was like, oh, I don't do that anymore. <laughs> it's so funny you say that because there are so many little ticks that I've noticed that ever since my diagnosis, I've noticed that I do that. Like, I'm like, I've been doing that my whole life. And like, when I'm like, on a roll with my ADHD and managing it. I'm like, I don't do that. Interesting. <laughs> very interesting. I did not know what stim was until very recently when someone was like, oh, you're stimming. And I'm like, I'm doing what? And then I'm like, oh, yes, my whole life, everything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's really eye-opening. I learned, like, it's, like I said before, it's been only a year for me. So like, I learn new stuff every day. And there's so many great content creators on Instagram that post about ADHD. There's like from therapists to uh, coaches to just normal people, you know, that just post about their experiences and stuff. Like there are so many. It's a great community to be a part of. In the last year, what has been the most surprising thing that you've learned? About ADHD or just in general? About ADHD. About ADHD? That I can use it to my advantage. That I can... You know, it doesn't have to be something that sets me back. You know, I can, I can use it to my advantage. I can use it for my content. I can use it to be productive. I can use it to help people. Like there's, as annoying as it can be sometimes, there are positives to it. And, I, and I'm like happy I have it. <laughs> because even though it's annoying, I know that I can use it to my advantage to help people and to, you know, live my life in a manageable way. Like that's, that's probably what I've learned the most. And that's a really good feeling. Well, I'm going to use a cliche from my favorite sport. Yeah. Hit it out of the park with the last answer there. My goodness. That was diehard Phillies fan. Absolutely. Red October. Let's go. It was going to come up. One of my nearest and dearest is also from Philly. I'm hoping for a Philly sweep. Yes. Yes. <laughs> diehard Philly over here. Big baseball fan. Love it. Yeah. Same. I travel the country going to baseball stadiums because I just love baseball stadiums. So yeah, I love, I love 
baseball. Baseball's, basketball is my favorite sport, but I love going, like traveling and watching baseball. Same. Hi, this was so much fun. I had such a lovely time. I could keep talking to you forever. The energy you put off is just, it makes me so happy because you are exactly who you are when you open up your phone. And like, it's really nice. It's really nice to see that authenticity. And I just, I wish you nothing but success in in building this following and, and doing what you want because you know, every time you sit across from someone and they tell you something like they're dreaming really big and you're like, oh, but like you mean every word you say. And I, I can just tell. And it just is so nice to to see that in this world because you and I both know we have stumbled across people who tell you what they think you want to hear and then they never follow through. And that is so hard, especially when so much is at stake. Agreed. And I can throw this right back at you as well, because what you're doing by even having these conversations in the first place, it, it's helping people. You are a great person. And I'm so happy that we met. And like, I look forward to having more conversations with you. Thank you. That was very kind of you. You're just relieved that I didn't like say I was a Mets fan or something. Oh, God, if you were, I would have ended this so fast. Oh, man. You gotta love that little crutch of coming out of someone giving you a compliment and you have to use a joke. But seriously, though, it was so fun to talk baseball with Kai there. We ended the interview and actually talked stadiums for like 20 minutes. So if you happen to be an ADHDer who loves baseball, you have found some kindred spirits in Kai and me. I have to imagine that if you weren't following Kai on social media before this episode started, I'm guessing at some point you jumped over and gave that follow button a big old tap. I just really appreciate Kai's self-awareness when it comes to how he manages his social media. It's clear he feels a sincere sense of responsibility, both for the content he's putting out and the person who is showing up for those followers. It's something I don't think we talk enough about. There's so much power intertwined through social media these days, and at the same time, very little regulation or safeguarding. And I wish more content creators had a mindset similar to Kai's. Social media is a place where we can learn more about ADHD, but not all the content that racks up billions of views is correct. Highly relatable doesn't always mean factual. Experts refer to this as cyberchondria. And it's a symptom of unmoderated, user-generated content. Social media algorithms also tend to show similar videos, further contributing to the spread of misinformation. We can combat this by following reliable sources, like credentialed ADHD professionals and recognized organizations. It's a few extra clicks and totally worth it when the goal is to find content made with fact-based medical information. ADHD Online has a helpful article called How to Fight ADHD Misinformation on Social Media that we'll link for you in the show notes. I also appreciate that Kai and I share the same views when it comes to toxic positivity. There are few things I find as frustrating and dangerous as toxic positivity. The shame that comes attached to it, it is like the world's worst plus one and the comparison game our brains insist on signing us up for. Optimism is necessary for life, 
And it can be really easy to become disenchanted when we're dealing with challenges and someone comes in with a top-down look at your life and some idealism turned up to 11. Referring to ADHD as a superpower, we've heard that sentiment here on the podcast. Some folks feel encouraged by the reference. Others might feel its invasive roots, with the reference's real potential to distract from the very real struggles experienced by a disorder that can completely upend a life. Where do you guys land on this? Let us know over on social because we're curious. Blind positive thinking can cause us to belittle ourselves and amp up feelings of anxiety and depression. ADHDers often find themselves in a game of comparison. If they can do it, I can too. Or it brings back memories from our lives when we were compared to others by our teachers and bosses. I have three sisters, and we are all very different people. And I didn't figure that out until I got much older. And I think a big part of that was because of how often, as the baby of the family, I was compared to them. When you start to feel like comparisons are getting in the way, it's important to take a step back and ask yourself these three things. Are these expectations around me right now realistic or unrealistic? Am I masking and hiding emotions that could help me understand my true feelings? Do I have to figure this out by myself? Or can I talk about it with someone I trust? So the next time someone is all positive vibes only, you can give yourself permission to evaluate what's really going on. Finding the balance between optimism and realism is important when it comes to positive thinking, especially for those of us with ADHD. When we can do our best to be mindful of it, when talking to ourselves and others, our outlook on our journeys can feel a bit brighter. I'm also so grateful to Kai for opening up about how hard it has been to have these conversations with his parents. I think a lot of us later in life ADHDers tread carefully around those convos for so many reasons. But I also think it's important that we feel comfortable to speak our truths. We can't control anyone else's reactions except our own. It's a lesson I'm learning in real time, and I have to remind myself over and over again, at the end of the day, the only thing I can control is me. I'm so grateful for the time I got to spend chatting with Kai and for his commitment to our community. To connect with Kai, you can find him on social at The Vibe with Kai. And he just released his latest digital guidebook, How I Thrive with ADHD as an Adult, My Self-Care Strategies and Personal ADHD Journey. It's $2, and you can find the link to purchase shared in our show notes. We've just been blown away by the support you've all shown us as we got refocused together 2023 off of the ground. We have so many more incredible stories to share with you. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to Refocused wherever you listen to podcasts and connect with us on social media at RefocusPod. Thank you guys so much, and we'll see you back here tomorrow for another brand new episode of Refocus Together. Support for Refocus comes from our partner, ADHD Online, a telemedicine mental health care company that provides affordable and accessible ADHD assessments and treatment plans. 
to learn how they can help you on your journey, head to ADHDonline.com. And remember to use the promo code REFOCUS20 to receive $20 off your ADHD online assessment right now. The biggest thanks go out to our team at ADHD Online, Keith Boswell, Suzanne Spruitt, Melanie Mile, Claudia Gotti, and Trisha Merchandunny for their constant support in helping make Refocus Together happen. These 31 episodes were produced thanks to our managing editor, Sarah Platinitis, our production coordinator, Phil Rodeman, social media specialist and editor, Al Chaplin, and me, the host and executive producer of Refocused, Lindsay Gensel. To connect with the show on social media, you can find us online at RefocusPod. And you can email the show directly, hello at RefocusPod.com. That's hello at RefocusPod.com.